Um, So the Bible reading today is from the great book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Um, If you'd like to find it in your blue books, it'll be on page 1,241, Um, but it'll also be on the screen behind me if you prefer to follow along that way. So starting in verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, good morning. That's good. Um, This date to uh, to talk about to do CMS Sunday has actually been in the diary for probably six months, but the date for this flight and the visa uh, they're pretty recent. Uh, So perhaps the perhaps this is a divinely orchestrated opportunity for us to think about this mission idea behind what's going on for the Purdies and for our other workers. So uh, let's pray quickly before we dive into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus at the centre of the throne. We thank you for this opportunity now. Please galvanise us and encourage us as we think about global mission. Amen. So the vision statement of CMS is a world that knows Jesus quite bold, don't you think? What would it take for us to see a world that knows Jesus? How would you go about evangelizing like the whole world? (laughs) It's quite big. Some of you may be thinking the preacher has lost the plot. Are you kidding? Is this the real world you're planning to evangelize? Some of you may be hearing this and saying, that's offensive. What about Jesus? Have you come to know Jesus yet as the Lord of history? Because the Lord of history says this about world evangelization. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's a word of prophecy. Jesus is saying, The whole world will be evangelized and only then will I return. First world evangelization and then the end of the world. Now some misinterpret this and say, see, 
we've been given a job to do, and until we do it, Jesus won't return. So, you know, for goodness sake, just get on with it. Otherwise, you are delaying the, the return of Christ, and it's a kind of a guilt trip. And there's a risk that, you know, we might see this as our mission, like our great idea, rather than as God's mission. It doesn't depend on us, actually, to evangelize the whole world, but it certainly does involve us. In fact, that's how he's doing it, if we will participate. And so the question is, do we want Jesus proclaimed to the whole world? That's the starting point for us as we ask the question of this talk, which is, where are we up to with mission? Where are we up to with mission? If we want to know where we're up to, we sort of need to know where we've come from and where we're going, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask that question in three ways. Where are we up to in the Bible's story of mission? Where are we up to in world history of mission? And thirdly, where are we up to as a church? What's it look like for us to be seeking a world that knows Jesus? So the Bible, world history, and our church. Firstly, where are we up to in the Bible's story of mission. God's mission starts in Genesis. The whole Bible is the account of God's mission to create and restore and perfect humanity and the rest of stuff. But where we, the church, come into the picture is really from the book of Acts onwards. It's a really significant moment. It's the point of handover, actually. Handover from God the Son, who is there, present in our world, and he's starting a new age through his death and resurrection. It's the handover to God the Spirit. And God the Spirit takes the message about God the Son, and he energizes and equips the church, you and me, for us to bear witness to that message about God the Son across the whole of humanity. And so that's where we step into the picture, at that point of handover. And you'll see yourself in that picture in just a moment. So in the book of Acts, right there after the Gospels, just as the Acts of the Apostles begin, that taking of the message of God the Son to the whole world, it's only just beginning. But as we'll see, it, it begins in an explosive way. That's the kickoff. But then, if we wind forward right to the other end of the Bible's picture, we come to the book of Revelation. We've just had that verse, those verses read. What is the goal? Where is all this heading? And we heard from Revelation chapter 7, as the Apostle John is seeing this vision of what's there at the end, he says, I looked, and there before me, was a great multitude that no one could count. From every tribe, nation, people, and language, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're wearing white robes, note the white robes, and they're holding palm branches and they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of the future. And at the point of that picture being snapped, mission has happened. World evangelization has happened. It's all done. 
The gospel has been preached to the whole world as Jesus predicted and now the end has come and there are people there from every nation, tribe and tongue. And you're there, right? Can you see yourself in the picture? You know, you close your eyes and imagine it. Everywhere you look is this diversity. There's different skin colour and different cultural background and you're hearing people speaking different languages, but you're there in amongst them, with them, and there are people from Afghanistan and from North Korea and from Eritrea and Iran, and they're all there around us, and together we are rejoicing at Jesus' glory and Jesus' grace. But what's happened between these two bookends? How did all these people get there? There are two things that we must say about what's happened and how these people got there. Firstly, a multitude of people must have heard the gospel. Otherwise, this, wouldn't, this picture wouldn't happen. One of the elders asks, who are these in white robes and where do they come from? And John says, well, I, I don't know, you, you, you tell me. And the elder tells him, they are the ones who've come out of the great ordeal, as one translation puts it. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, since when do you wash clothes in blood and they come out white? This is not cleaning tips, just in case you're wondering. Don't try this at home. This is the cleansing from guilt that you receive through Jesus' death. If you trust him. Wash your heart in Jesus' blood and God will see it as perfectly clean. Wash your mind in Jesus' blood and God will see it as perfectly pure. That's what the gospel tells us. You can't find this out. You can't work this out on your own. In fact, it's, it's counterintuitive. And you may even feel that depending on someone else's brutal death for your cleansing is an awful thought. Depending on another person to make me innocent. I'm not that bad, am I? Well, the gospel tells me, yes, I am. The only reason that Jesus' blood is even in the picture, the only reason that it was shed intentionally was for human sin. Why else would God, the Son, shed his blood? No, this multitude must have heard the gospel of Jesus because they're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And if they hadn't heard the message, they wouldn't have known anything about the blood. And the second thing we must say about this multitude is the gospel must have gone to the ends of the earth for this picture to have been taken. Christianity is not white. I mean, we mostly are, but Christianity is not exclusively white. It's multicultural and it's more multicultural than any church you or I have ever visited. But how is it multicultural? Well, there's only one way it be, could have become multicultural. There's nothing random about it. It doesn't sort of accidentally become multicultural. For the multitude to become multicultural, the message must go cross-cultural. Culture isn't simple. You don't accidentally cross cultures. Otherwise, they would just dissolve and blend into one another. But that's just not how it happens, is it, around the world? Our cultures are pretty set. I mean, there is some blending. But unless there is intention, we typically stay in our comfort zones, don't we? In our own cultures. We don't understand other cultures. We find it hard. At best, we see other cultures as a novelty. At worst, we call them foreign. 
And we don't really want to spend a lot of time with people that we find it hard to think, along, think similarly to, people who talk differently and live differently. It's hard work. If this picture of the multicultural gathering tells us anything, it tells, that through, tells us that throughout the history of the church, missionaries have been sent. Cross-cultural workers are a fundamental necessity for the fulfilment of God's mission. There is no other way that this picture happens other than missionaries going. The other peoples, they're not going to come to us. Yeah, I know, sure, a tiny group of wealthy young adults from a small number of people groups around the world will come and you know, study here and some will come and get work here. But it's quite rare for them to return home and become effective evangelists. They're not going to hear the message from the internet, but you might be thinking, well, surely they could just Google, how can I be saved? But what language are they going to Google that in? In the vast majority of the world's languages, you Google that and you find nothing. We need to go to them And we need to stay long enough for locals in that country to believe the message, for their own indigenous church to become capable of sharing the message, and then for that church to grow. So God sends missionaries. How else do we move from Acts to Revelation? Yes, we are involved in mission ourselves to friends and family and local community, but mission or missio from the original Latin word means sending to other communities and this is part of our participation in Jesus program global mission is not an add-on for God it's the centerpiece of what he's doing so where are we up to you know we're somewhere in the middle the church is still in the business of sending out missionaries because there are still many many unrepresented nations uh, and we, that needs to change between now and the end which brings us to question two where are we up to in world history So, a quick survey of 2,000 years. Let's hope it's quick-ish anyway. Uh, Because numbers tell a powerful story. I'm getting my stats from a book called The Future of the Global Church by Patrick Johnston. He's the guy behind the Operation World Resource. In Acts chapter 1, there are about 120 believers. By Acts chapter 4, there are 5,000 believers. Quick growth, isn't it? By the end of the first century, there may have been as many, it's a bit hard to say, this stat is a little bit tricky, but there may have been as many as 1.4 million Christians in the world, 0.1% of the world's population. That's not bad for 60 years or so of bearing the message, is it? But check out where it goes next. Slide one, please. By the year 200, it's 4.7% of the world's population. By 300, it's 7.5%. By 400, it's 13.4%. By 500, one in five people on the earth were Christian. That's incredible, isn't it? Now, were they all mature disciples? I doubt it. In our own country, just because people put Christian on the census doesn't mean they have saving faith necessarily. But it does mean that the gospel has been preached extensively in Australia if our numbers on the census are, you know, even up in that 50% kind of area. Most of Australia's people groups are called reached people groups. We are a gospel-rich country 
you can find a church pretty much anywhere. We're not a gospel poor country. And remember, Jesus didn't actually say that the whole world would be Christian, but that the message would go to the whole world. So what happens next? Slide two. World population begins to increase significantly. There is the birth and spread of Islam. The number of Christians actually stood still at about 40 million for about 400 years, but the percentage in, 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 or in percentage terms, it drifts down. And then there's this exception of the, I'm sure you've spotted the 13th century spike. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but I think it's connected with the complex effects of the Mongol Empire. And incidentally, during that, uh, during that century, the number of Christian martyrs exceeded 7 million. And no other century prior had had more than a million martyrs. So it was, it was obviously a big century. But anyway, it, it corrects. Uh, and then there is a gradual increase post-Reformation until, slide three, the incredible 19th century. Look at that. Massive explosion in mission activity during the 1800s. By 1900, 45,000 Protestant missionaries and multiple spiritual awakenings all around the world. By 1900, Christianity represented 34.4% of the world population, one in three humans. So what was going to come next? You know, where's this graph heading? Gets you thinking, doesn't it? Now, a friend recently forwarded me a great Gospel Coalition website article by Douglas A. Sweeney called, When Did Evangelicals Stop Caring About Missions? Bit of a confronting title, isn't it? But uh, Sweeney points to the world being poised right here for an incredible 20th century. It was going to be the Christian century, a golden age of world Christianity. But what happened? Well, two world wars, dozens of genocides, massive population growth, an increase, a significant increase of Islam in Asia and Africa, along with, as we know, a devastating decline in Christian commitment in Europe, followed by the rest of the West. Between 1900 and 2000 in the Northern Hemisphere, Christianity went from representing 82% of the population, so we're just talking about the top half of the world, 82% of the population over 100 years went to 41%. That's a big drop, isn't it? And that's, that's Western culture that we are familiar with. Along with this, in the 20th century, 45 million martyrs. So then what happened to the overall percentages? I suppose we're expecting a massive drop. Let's see slide four. Shows us the whole, pe the whole period. Well, not a massive drop actually. It didn't rise. It fell slightly and today it's still around 32%. What's been happening? You may be tempted to think that with this post-Christianity that we're experiencing in the West, um, in our own culture, that the percentages may have dropped even further than that just like they do in our census numbers, and we get depressed, don't we? Because it's less and less people who will call themselves Christian. Why haven't they dropped more globally? And the answer is very simple. It's because of the global south. 
several regions around the world, especially in Asia, Africa, and South America, Christian, Christian faith grew from nearly 18% of the population in 1900 to 59% in the year 2000. That's massive. The 20th century has seen massive growth in the church in many of the poorest parts of the world that in some ways have offset the massive exodus from what in a lot of ways is nominal Christian faith in the West. So where does that leave us today? Where are we up to in world history? Surely the 21st century is the time to engage in cross-cultural discipleship and evangelism. Surely that's what's happening in our era. It's time for crossing cultures. Surely we in the West will see the huge opportunities for ministry in the parts of the world that are responding to Christianity. There are many. Surely we will share our resources. For example, the massive heritage of English language theological resources and training expertise. Surely we'll share that with the church that is growing so fast that it can't keep up, it can't train its leaders quick enough. You might say, well, surely we shouldn't abandon the West also. What about our friends and neighbours? Do we just give up and focus everything on the 1040 window? Have you heard that expression, the 1040 window? It's the, it's the part of the world between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north of the equator and it covers those countries from North Africa um, I, should draw it, I should sort of draw it in the air opposite, in opposite ways. From North Africa, across the Middle East, across Central Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia. That 1040 window is the next big frontier for mission. Do we just throw everything at that? Well, I mean, we, we certainly need to throw something at it, but our church must keep witnessing here in Australia, of course. But the big picture is the world, We've seen the big picture in Revelation 7 and all the culture crossing that needs to happen this century. Now is the time for sending missionaries while the resources are all here. The harvest is ripe. Let's ask the Lord of the harvest, Jesus tells us, to send our workers into the harvest. Which brings us to our concluding question. Question three, where are we up to as a church? in terms of global mission. It's so encouraging for me uh, to know that you are partnering, we are partnering with the Purdy's, so encouraging to hear Matt uh, and the way in which he leads us in this, encourages every member to get on board with global mission, every member to get on their knees and to pull out their wallets to try and encourage and enable uh, the Purdy's and the Rose and the Davises. What does it look like for you personally? Are you involved? Do you see the Chileans and the Africans in Revelation 7? You know, as you stand there in that gathering. You know, you can't see their faces, but you know that we're there with them. And they're there because the work that God has done through missionaries. But here's the thing, we don't send them off on their own, you know, good luck, Purdy's. We send them with our support, with our love with our prayers, with our funding. So CMS talks about pray, care, give, 
go. Have you heard those four words? Pray, care, give, go. Pray for missionaries, care for missionaries, give for missionaries, and go and put your own hand up to be a missionary. So to wind up then, let's look at these four briefly. Firstly, pray. Do you pray for missionaries? You know, obviously we have prayer from the platform here and we all participate in that, but what about in your own devotions? Asking God to let his kingdom come for the countries that our missionaries are serving in, for the work that they're doing and for their own provision and protection. Are you praying yet for Malcolm and Ainsley? These visas have been a significant answer to many, many prayers. Possibly 1,500 people praying together on Wednesday night at the CMS annual online dinner. And they, you know, they got the visas in their inbox the next day. It's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> nudge, nudge. <laughs> Let's do some more of that prayer thing because it's good. And it happens all the time with our missionaries. They do also have to spend time waiting too for answers to prayer. But anyway, <laughs> move along. Um, pray for them with the big culture shift ahead, the language learning, the relationship building, so that they can get involved with this training of pastors, preparing those pastors for a lifetime of gospel ministry across Chile and other parts of South America. You do pray for the kingdom, don't you, in your prayers? I'm going to be a bit impolite here. Can we say that we're committed to the kingdom if we don't actually get involved in praying for the kingdom? We, we sort of need to stop praying that God would make our lives more comfortable and, just st- and start focusing our prayer on what he wants us to pray. It doesn't mean, you know, don't pray for, you know, significant illness in your family or somebody who's at a critical moment and they're uncomfortable. By all means, pray that. But let's, let's just shift the, the focus of our prayer to the things that he's doing in the world. That's the thing. Just make that big in your prayers that Christ would be known in all the earth. Secondly, care. Now, some of you may remember, although it was last year, and I only remember because it's in my notes. No, it's not true. I do remember standing up here uh, with Nigel and Rose, and they were finishing up after 11 years on the field, and and we were asking them, what's your advice for us, a church that's uh, finishing up with one missionary, about to partner with some new missionaries, you know, what what are you going to tell us? And I'm thinking, they're going to say, well, do lots of prayer, you know, that's a good thing. Give lots of money, that's a good thing. But do you remember what they said? They said, love them. And that really struck me, and I, um, yeah, I think I've, I've thought about that a lot since. That mission overseas is really hard. Missionaries' lives are turned upside down by crossing cultures. They need our love. It's not just a nice thing that Christians do for each other they're making themselves more vulnerable, we are going to remind them that we love them. So how can you show love to the Purdies in this tricky time? We've already talked about the various subscriptions you can do. Um, However, it's more than just signing up, isn't it? It's when those emails arrive in your inbox and actually saying, you know, I love the Purdies, and so I'm going to take my hand off my mouse and I'm going to actually read this and, I mean, you may have to scroll, but you know, um, I'm going to read this, and then when I get to the bottom, I'm going to maybe I'll actually Google uh, Chile again, or, or look it up on the Operation World app, and just 
just to remind myself what they're doing and to care about them. And maybe I fire off an email to them. I mean, I might not necessarily expect a response every single time, but just for them to know that I'm here and that I, am, I remember them and that I, I, want, I want them to know that I'm praying for them. Thirdly, give. I was talking recently to a friend who works in Christian ministry fundraising and she's actually pretty energised by it. I don't know how many people here would like a fundraising job. It's not everybody's cup of tea but for this friend she loves it because she sees it as a tangible expression of people's faith. She loves to see it when, when the money emerges you know, from the woodwork because it's a sign. She, you know, if people believe that gospel ministry is important then their giving proves it. In the West, we might be time poor, but we're not money poor. Now, I know that groceries are stupidly expensive at the moment, along with everything else, but if we've got money in our bank accounts, then we've got money. She said to to me the other day, why do we keep saying, nothing in my hand I bring? And I, I, you know, we reflected on it together, and I think the reason we keep saying, nothing in my hand I bring, is that hymn, Rock of Ages which actually says, nothing in my hand I bring. Um, But that hymn is about uh, not pretending before God that we're righteous when we're actually not. We're we're in need of his blessing for us. But we had to think, and neither of us could actually think of a place in the Bible where it says to come to God empty-handed. In fact, it says quite the opposite. Um, The very next day, or might have been two days later, I was walking and Exodus 34 was coming into my ears and God says in his law... No one is to appear before me empty-handed. I couldn't help thinking of my conversation. A few verses later, um, God says to Moses, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Because the reality is sending missionaries is expensive. Now, you know, we we could probably save some money if we cut back on caring for them. We don't want to do that, though. Our missionaries already... Uh, their living is already modest compared with many of us. The Purdies are nearly fully funded, but let's get them fully paid for, because I'm sure we can. It's not that far beyond our reach collectively. Although each person, obviously, you've got your own situation. Are you, you you often hear that expression, are you putting your finances to work? Usually that expression means putting it to work, earning more finances. But I mean putting it to work putting your finances to work for the kingdom of Jesus, giving to the local church, giving to the poor, giving to global mission, whatever it is. And fourthly, gets a bit uncomfortable here, go. Pray, care, give, go. Uh, Not a lot of people are lining up to go on mission. You know, I have a list of names of people that I'm meeting up with, people in the pipeline, if you like, but not loads of names, what about this church? Let's, let's have a look around. Go on, have a look. <laughs> um, who could we send? You know, they'd need to be willing and able, I guess. Uh, but this is a church activity. And maybe we should do that a little bit more often, to have a look around and think, who could be our next global missionaries? It's a partnership Who could we set apart and then commit to supporting them? Could this be a prayer goal over the next 12 months, for example, that God would lay it on our hearts who might 
go next after the Purdy's. And if it's you, you know, at some point you're going to need to put your hand up, but you might not be sure about that, and so you might want to have a chat, and that's basically what my job is, to chat to, you know, prospective people and uh, to catch up. I'm not going to send anybody who I think isn't, it, it's not going to work for. But do get in touch if you would like to talk about that. I'm not going to pressure anyone. If God wills it, he will enable it because it's his thing. Okay, to finish up, that's a good place for us to conclude. Is global mission God's hobby that he does on the side? No. Maybe it's his full-time job. Maybe it's even more than that. It's his entire agenda. Remember, God never sleeps. Mission is everything to him. It's the expression of his love and grace and glory to the planet, to humanity in particular. It's the extension of his love and mercy, his wisdom and his righteousness and his glorious vision for all humanity and for all creation. So let's pray regularly, our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come. Let me lead us briefly in prayer now. Our Father, we do pray that you would let your kingdom come and that you would use us, whether it be through partnering with missionaries or going as missionaries. We pray that you would help us to go where it's difficult, even if it does mean staying in our own neighbourhoods, to talk to the difficult people, to seek out the person who's different from us. But also, Lord, we pray that you would help us to think about how our mission could be global and how it could be increasingly global and how that global vision might um, make us grow us in, a, in, in health as a church. Now, Father, we pray that your spirit would really work in us and challenge us and encourage us day by day in what you're doing. We pray that we would not lose heart because of this so-called post Christianization of the West, but you'd help us to, to stand firm and to trust you and to know that Jesus is indeed the Lord of history and that what he says will happen. And we pray this in his name. Amen.